Thank you very much. Good afternoon to all of you wonderful people. Quite a group of singers. I even feel comfortable singing by myself down here, and I don't have to listen to myself. <laughs> Every now and then I get drafted to lead songs in Tyler, and um, I, I, I don't mind helping out whenever I can, but I feel sorry for so many people who have to watch and listen. Um, do the best I can. What a privilege it is to be here in Canada to speak to you. I, I sincerely mean that. Um, a lot of you may not know me that well, which is fine, but um, I lived here in Canada for four and a half years back in the late 70s. Uh, just to give you a little background information, I lived in Toronto for three and a half years, serving in the full-time ministry with World Life Church of God, and then I transferred down here to Windsor and pastored the church here for a year, of which three members that I know of are here, Mr. Bev Coates, Mr. Joe Bedar, and Mr. Rick Klein were original members when I was back there a long time ago. And the one thing about that is you get older. I don't know, is, is anybody else here by any chance that was back in Windsor in 1978? My children were both born in Canada. Uh, my son was born in Hamilton in 1975. My daughter was born here in Windsor in 1978. And uh, she asked me to take a picture of the hospital where she was born because she doesn't remember much about it. Because I was, I was only here for one year, and then I was transferred down to Bowling Green, Kentucky. Uh, Canada was a wonderful country. I traveled all over Ontario. I know it like the back of my hand. I've never forgotten that. My wife always wants to know how in the world I can remember all these things from so many years ago. Um, but I just do. Uh, we traveled from Ottawa to Kingston to Algonquin Park, um, up to Midland, Barrie, Aurelia. Uh, the farthest north I have ever been was a place called Tomogamy up around Kirkland Lake uh, one winter when it was 38 below zeros with about 25 Boy Scouts. Couldn't get in by road. We had to go in in the mail car or the train for about a three-hour trip. That was an experience. Um, and believe me, they learned about their winter survival badge. It was interesting. Um, I was ordained by a man by the name of Gary Antion in 1975 in Toronto. So Toronto is very special to me. I thoroughly loved it. I'll tell you a little story, though, that's kind of interesting. We had only been here about a month in Canada, and on July 4th in 1975, they sent my wife and, and me to somewhere up around a, the, a part of Algonquin Park where we had a group of Boy Scouts for their summer experience badge of some sort. On July 4th up there, it was... 32 degrees. And my wife said, there has to be some mistake. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, it's not a mistake. It's 32 degrees. And we went swimming that day, and it was probably 60 degrees in the lake. It was, that was an experience, too. But I thoroughly love Canada. I'm glad to be able to be here. I was actually in Toronto during the time they built the CN Tower used to sneak downtown whenever I had a chance, sit in the parking lot in the car and watch the helicopters lift the concrete up to build that. That was built with heavy lift helicopters, and that was an experience. But I've never had a chance to go in the CN Tower because I moved to Windsor and it wasn't quite finished. So Mr. Gross has asked me to come to Toronto and speak several times, and I told him as soon as I could work it into my schedule, I would love to go back to Toronto. Because I, we lived in Mississauga and then Bramley which I understand has been turned into Brampton now. Um, but I, I truly loved it up there. Anyway, I 
came here for one purpose, to give you two sermons, and I promise they will be different sermons, so you won't have to worry about that. And secondly, to learn from all of you, because it, whenever you go to a feast site, I, I went to four last year, which was pretty rough, but everywhere you go, even though you don't know most of the people, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are just like family. And I, I sincerely mean that. And I'm here to learn from you because it's all of you that make the feast a success. Those, it's not just the ministers that speak. It's those that are involved in helping to organize it, helping to, to make it work. And then all the membership that gets together and fellowships with one another and has that compassion, that love for one another that is a camaraderie spirit that is really what makes it work. And so I always enjoy that. I, I know it's... You see the, the service involved with all the people that, that are helping, the involvement from all of you, as well as the care and the fellowship. And that's what really makes the feast wonderful. And we are truly family. You've probably heard that before, but we really are. And uh, you can feel it when you go to the feast. I don't think that's any surprise to anybody. And also welcome to all of you who are here for the first time. That's always an experience, and we certainly want you to have a good experience with that. Every year, <clears throat> this particular thing happens. It's very depressing. It's very unsettling. It's painful. But all of you that have sports teams that you follow know that every year there are going to be changes in coaching. It hurts. You love the coach. They do wonderful jobs with these teams, with these players. But because of poor performances, well, they get the axe. And that makes it tough because whenever you have a new coach comes in, well, the teams become reorganized. You lose assistant coaches. You lose players. There's no loyalty like there used to be years ago, it seems like, because everybody's searching for the dollar. And it's painful when you've got a special team. It doesn't matter whether it's hockey or football or basketball or baseball or soccer or whatever it is or golf. Um, you know, even golfers fire their managers and their uh, caddies, as has happened in the past. And it hurts. You don't know what to do. The one thing about today is you can record the games, and if they win, watch them. If they don't, forget it. It's not quite as painful as it used to be. And then you have the aspect of politics. You know, we've got an election coming up here in a few weeks in the States, You've had elections up here, and you have them off and on, but you have an opportunity to vote people out of office who are poor performers because they haven't done what they said they were going to do, whether it be the problems or the money or somebody, somebody said the other day, you know, you can always tell a politician is lying, and, you know, you know how do you know that? Whenever they open their mouth. And then sadly to say, that's about the case nowadays, and they, they justify it. There are scandals right and left, doesn't matter who it is. And then there are some that have been around so many years, they need to go into retirement because they're almost senile in some ways. And, you know, they need to make a change. But because of poor performances, changes happen. Every year, as the Feast of Tabernacles approach, I think all of us look for one thing in common, and it couldn't come soon enough, and that is the return of Christ. That's what we look forward to. That's what we want to happen. And the sad thing about that is it's not going to happen this year. 
I think it's safe to say that. There's too much prophetically that has to occur before Christ returns. Now, I would love to be wrong, and I would love to see Christ show up right now. You know, let him get up here and speak instead of me. He could do a much better job. I'm ready for the kingdom of God. I really am. Um, There are a lot of people that are not ready for that and don't want it, don't have any interest in it. Well, my question for you is, why do we need Christ to return? Is life really that bad? Now, maybe if you live in a third world country with some of what those Christians are going through, yeah, you could say life is horrible and conditions are horrible. And it's a a shame that people don't have the blessings and the affluence that we do because there are some people that really do suffer. But there are a lot of people that think man is doing just fine. We are progressing. Change is good. Human rights are wonderful. Heard the other day that they're actually striving to have rights for monkeys, literally. That came up last week. It was on the news. And the sad thing is there was a man in Texas back in the spring who was sent to two years in prison for allowing his dog to freeze to death in the winter, but yet you can have an abortion and nobody bats an eye. We have a society of political correctness, it seems like, virtually anywhere. We accept and are told to accept anybody's beliefs, anybody's way of life, that man is maturing, reaching a higher level. Well, I tend to disagree with that, and I think most of you would too. But the problem is they have ruled God out of things because they feel that God is unnecessary. But there is a change of command that is coming. I think all of you are aware of that. God is actually going to have to come and save the life of mankind. Mankind, most of them don't realize that. But it shows you what kind of a job that we have in trying to help other people understand what Christ is actually going to have to do. So why do we need Christ to return? We'll turn over to Matthew chapter 24, if you would. Something that describes the times in which we live and the times in the future with whatever is going to take place will happen. Jesus said, For then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, known or ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. For the elect's sake. We are the elect. We are those that have been chosen and called out of this world to be a light, to be an example, to be something to help preach the gospel to people. And you do that every day by the life that you live. A lot of people look at this and say, well, that was, that was back in 70 A.D. when the Romans ransacked Jerusalem. Well, no, it wasn't at a time when all flesh could be wiped off from the face of the earth. We live in those times And we live in some times where we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And we've heard that before. I've heard it from the time I was growing up. But we live in times today where we do not know what tomorrow is going to bring. There are some crazy people out there. And they are willing to do damage and destroy anything and everything that we have in the lifestyle that we live, whether it be here or over in Europe or Britain. They want their way to be number one. They want to take over. You know, I never thought I'd have to think about 
what I would do if somebody put a knife to my head and wanted to cut it off. We had that happen a couple of weeks ago in Oklahoma. A Christian. And that's, that's pretty close to home. I mean, that, that's right across the border from East Texas, from Northeast Texas, where I live. And for the first time, I happen to think we have got terrorism in this country, and we do not know where it's going to strike next. And so every day, I ask God to direct our steps, to watch over your lives, because we don't know. It could happen anywhere. It could happen on the corner here in Windsor. It could happen over in Detroit. It could happen in Dallas. It could happen virtually anywhere. We had that horrible killing, you know, a few years ago in, in um, not Colleen. Maybe it was Colleen, the military base where the, the Islamists shot 14 or 15 people. Uh, you, just, you just don't know anymore. We live in some very dangerous times, and yet we are the elect, and the reason that God is going to step in and take care of things is because of the elect's sake to spare us from being completely wiped out. Let's see if we can understand what got man in this predicament. You have to ask yourself the question that a lot of people already say yes to this, is can mankind govern himself? We all know the answer to that, but there are a lot of people who disagree with you. Oh, we've, we've survived almost... 6,000 years, we're doing fine. We've got a few wrinkles along the way, but we're correcting those as time goes on, and we've got better ideas. You know, we'll work this out sooner or later. Um, that's the general consensus of most people that you're going to talk to and disagree with you. They think they can take care of that. Well, man's way is eventually going to reach its end. I think the Bible is very clear about that. Just when and where, I have no idea. But if certain elements get a hold of certain weapons and buttons to push, it'll happen. You know, I, I would hope if, and pray that if it could happen, that they could all just go at once and Christ intervene just before they hit the earth tomorrow and be over with. Now, God could do that and God could allow that to happen, but God's probably not going to do that. He's got some other things to take care of. I want to take you on a mental trip. I'm in the landscape business. I've been for 34 years. I have about 23 or 24 employees. And so we're going to talk about gardening today, but in a little different sense than the landscape aspect of it. Let's see if we can understand what was lost, what was missing, some of the problems, and what has to take place. This will take a little bit of thought difficult concept to visualize. Put yourself back in the Garden of Eden. See if you can imagine what it must have been like. You're Adam or Eve. You've been put in this garden. You have no knowledge of anything. You're asleep. Suddenly your eyes open as God breathes into you the breath of life and you become aware of God the Creator. You don't know anything else. God says, I'm the creator. I have just created you. You're in my garden. And you can imagine what must have taken place. The book of, the book of Genesis doesn't give us much indication of what happened, does it? We have to kind of just speculate about it. We know that God took Adam, dwelt with Adam, instructed Adam, had a wonderful relationship. There was no sin. It was a perfect environment. 
It was a place where there was peace. There was perfection. There was probably some of God's law, although at the very beginning, if there was no sin, there certainly wouldn't have been a need for any law other than the fact that God probably did tell them that this is the Sabbath day, this is what you're going to rest from, from work. He gave them their responsibility of what they had to do. And they were told there were certain things they could and couldn't do. And just what all God told them, the Bible really doesn't say, just a few things. But they had daily communication with this creator. God's glory was there with them. God dwelt with man for a period of time. He had specific requests of them. I've always wondered how long that was before the serpent showed up. That's one of the things I'm going to ask God, and I think we'll probably want to know that when we have Christ return. I don't know whether it was a couple months or a week or whatever, but it was a period of time, I would imagine, that God kept the serpent out of the Garden of Eden, away from Adam and Eve, until he was through instructing them and giving them an education, so to speak. But after a period of time, the serpent entered the Garden. Now remember this, keep this in mind, a perfect environment. They lacked nothing. They needed nothing because everything that they had, God provided. And it was an environment that was wonderful. Then sin entered the picture, and the whole relationship changed. Mankind had become contaminated. The Garden of Eden had become contaminated, and mankind became separated from God. God, they, had, they did not have the access to God as time went on like they did at the beginning. That's why you find when Christ was killed on, a, on Passover and the veil of the temple was rent, when that veil was op- opened and exposed the Holy of Holies, mankind again had direct access to God that they didn't have before. Why sin? Well, man was created with free will. Man was given freedom. And if you've read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, you're going to find a statement in there where he says, if a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. And so God created Adam and Eve, not like he did the angels who were given a period of time of free will because what happened to them was they came and sinned. They challenged God himself in Isaiah 14, if you will, where where Satan and Lucifer says in that statement in Isaiah, I will ascend up to heaven. I will become like God. I will be like the Most High. And you find that back in the book of Genesis. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 3, you'll find that same statement that you find in the book of Isaiah where the serpent begin to say the same thing and challenge Adam and Eve. As he says in Genesis 3 and verse 4, And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, the tree of life, in other words, that your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And so the temptation was there. This wonderful opportunity to understand good and evil. Well, how'd that turn out? Not too good, did it? Not too good. You and I understand good and evil and look at the problems we have. And we have God's Word. And it's still difficult. 
God created man. He gave us everything. He gave us happiness and peace. He gave mankind the environment to live in. And then he expelled them from it in verse 23. He says in verse 22, God said, Behold, the man has become one of us to know good and evil. Now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. That wouldn't turn out very well, would it? It would be just like Satan, living forever and being evil. Therefore the Lord God sent him from the garden to till the ground from where it was taken. Well, I know what that's like being in the landscape business. Tilling the ground's not fun. It's not pleasant very much. Not only do you have to work and sweat, but you have to try to make things grow, and sometimes that doesn't work very well. So he drove man from the garden east of Eden and placed a flaming sword in front of the garden for a reason, because what was lost, mankind literally walked away from it, and God could not allow them back in. That was the Garden of Eden. That's what what was there. That's what was available. That's what was lost and what was gotten rid of by mankind. We freely did that. We weren't forced to do it. And yet I wonder sometimes if, if we can fully grasp everything that was lost at creation. I don't, I don't think we can. Paul talks about, and Paul doesn't give us too many hints. He, he just gives us a few things. But he talks about looking through this glass darkly. Well, we'd like to clean that glass up and see through it a whole lot better, and we just can't do it. Because we only get bits and pieces of what God has available for mankind and what's out there, what lies beyond in his kingdom, in his tabernacling or dwelling with mankind that's going to come in the future. We'd like to know a whole lot more. You would, I would, everybody that gets into God's word wants to know that. But we just get bits and pieces of how it might be and how exciting it's going to be and how much better it's going to be. Because when I look at this world, when I look at society and what's taking place now, it's not that good. It really isn't. People have a lot of problems. And we cannot solve those problems. We just keep digging a deeper and deeper hole until finally we're going to dig the hole deep enough we can't get out of it. That's where we're headed. So point number one was in the first garden, Garden of Eden. The second point I have is Mankind's garden, the garden that we were left to create for ourselves, which is where we are today. Why did man fall? Well, you could go to the book of Proverbs, a very simple, very familiar scripture that you probably have heard and maybe even memorized. There is a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And boy, do we think we have come somewhere over time. I think it's even worse today with all the knowledge explosion that Daniel talked about in Daniel chapter 12. We've got an explosion of knowledge. We can't even keep up with it. I can't even use the iPad very well because there's too much on it. And I don't have time to surf this stuff out like a lot of people do. But you can find anything and everything, and it doesn't even have to be true. Do you ever think about that? You probably run across that as well. Uh, so you have to be careful. And the one thing about our world today, it doesn't seem like there's any common sense out there. There's just no common sense. Why do people do certain things? Well, they, you know, we had this kind of a thought back in the late 60s when I was growing up. If it feels good, do it. 
or if you want it, get it, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. Um, my dad taught me differently. Um, I fought him over it when I was growing up, but I finally realized he wasn't the stupidest person I thought he was. He actually had some sense to him. But he was an ex-Marine, so I didn't have a chance. Our world is changing daily. I have never thought I would see a time like this. Never thought I would see a time like this. I thought I'd seen virtually everything there was to see with where mankind was headed. But it seems like every day you turn on the news, you don't know what's happening. You don't know where it's happening. And I have never experienced a time where things are moving so quickly that you can't even keep up with it. Literally, you cannot. But reality is soon setting in with what mankind is going to be doing. Over in 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 9, Paul tells us about what mankind's thoughts are on, on these things and why mankind has not been able to understand it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9, As it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. We have the briefest, smallest little bit of understanding as to what God has to offer us. It's not very much, but we've got an insight that a lot of people don't have. And the reason we have that is because of what Paul says in verse 10. But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man save the Spirit of man which is in man? Even so, the things of God knows no man but the Spirit of God. You and I have a gift that I fully believe we have never fully tapped into what is available to us from God. I think, I think as you probably know too, from the scriptures you read in Joel chapter 2 about pouring out his spirit upon man and people prophesying and performing things, I think this was going to be yet fulfilled before Christ returns. I think what was seen on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts was just the beginning of the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. I don't think we've seen anything yet. And I think God is going to pour his spirit out upon us. But that is what gives you and me the understanding of who God is, what God has to offer. Because the garden that mankind has created is not a very pleasant place. You know, C.S. Lewis went on to talk about in his book, Mere Christianity, the invasion that took place in the Garden of Eden when the serpent went there and when Satan basically did to Adam and Eve what he tried to do to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. You know, he, he tricked them, he twisted things. He, he told Jesus that if you be the Son of God, throw yourself down. If you be hungry, make these rocks turn to bread. If you want to be famous, fall down and worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms. It was in his power to do that. Jesus rejected him. Adam and Eve didn't. Adam and Eve followed a hook, line, and sinker. What God did was God gave us that sense of right and wrong. Most people there is a sense of right and wrong. Even though they may want to go the other direction, deep down inside they know it's wrong. He selected one special people, the nation of Israel. And he sent us a Savior to live and die 
and be resurrected, and they give us life. That's available. The garden that we live in, mankind's garden, that's available to everybody out here. You know, God, the, Peter says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The, the ability to save every human being and give them salvation is there if people will just turn. And you and I play a part in that, in the things that we talk to people about and tell people about, the way you live your life. Oh, they think you're different. People think that I'm different. In the business world, shutting a business down on the holy days is not easy. You've got to plan for it. And, you know, I, I just, my business is going to grow beginning November the 1st 30% more because of three major contracts I just signed. Now, you've got to plan for things. You know, you give your employees time off. You know, we have so much we have to get done every week, and we have to fight the weather too, which is not pleasant. But you never know what to expect with that. But we have Jesus Christ, which is the link between God and man. And you and I now have access to him, to God the Father, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we have chosen to be involved with that. A lot of people in the world not interested. They think they know what they're doing. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Very, very common scripture. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. That is why man's garden is such a mess. Man feels that we have everything we need. We've got money. We've got affluence. And I'm talking about nations in Europe, England, Canada, the United States, Australia, Japan, even China for that matter. They've got money. They've got access to knowledge. They've got everything that you could possibly think to make things work. But they also have evil within these societies, which is truly trying to bring things down and change things. Once mankind rejected God, they had to fill that void with another God. And so, you name it, we've done it. Our gods has become materialism, affluence, knowledge, power, uh, recognition, you know, whatever. We have placed something else and put something else in place of God. If mankind does not have a God, mankind will create a God because there is that inherent ability and need within mankind to have a superior being. I mean, mankind rejected God in the Garden of Eden and God sent them out. What did mankind do? Came up with other gods. You have the Babylonians, you have the Assyrians, you have the Romans, the Greeks, the great nations in ancient times. How many gods did they have? You can't even count them all. But it made them feel better, I guess. That was you know, what they needed, something to make them feel better. Second Corinthians talks about the human mind being blinded by what Satan has done to mankind. That is so evident today, it is unreal. You know, people don't understand that, but, but literally mankind has become blinded 
And we have turned our backs on God. Ephesians chapter 6, very briefly. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. This is another thing I don't think a lot of people understand. It says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. My wife is taking a Bible class in one of the churches there in town. She doesn't attend with me, hasn't for years. It's unfortunate. It's one of the things that we face. A lot of people out there that used to be attending that don't. The Windsor Church used to be about 150 or 60. And I think now there's about a, a dozen that attend two or three different congregations there. It is, it's kind of sad. Um, my wife keeps the Passover with me every year, but that's it. And when she was born, her parents were attending the Worldwide Church of God back in 52. It was back a long time. But that's one of the things that you and I hope for, that we can get family members. Of all of her family and my family, I'm the only one that has anything to do with anything anymore. And... Uh, I feel alone till I'm here with all of you. It makes it feel better. Spiritual forces. She found in one of her classes, 40% of people do not believe in Satan. They just feel that it was a culmination of thoughts and events over history of how this thought about this being came about. Can you imagine the danger that that type of thinking is? 20% have no opinion of whether Satan is real or not. They don't even care. And only 40% believe in Satan. And yet, we are at war with spiritual forces behind the scenes that we have no idea what is going on. The twisting, the taking of truth and turning it upside down, miracles that can be performed by others that are not from God, half-truths, lies, You know, Satan appears as an angel of light. I don't think we understand how dangerous that is, how deceitful that can be. And yet, that's what we face. You know, when you read the book of Daniel, I've mentioned this before. In Daniel chapter 10, it talks about the angel Gabriel talking to Daniel. It took 21 days for the message from God, the revelation of of what God wanted him to understand, to be taken to him. Because Michael, the other archangel, had to come and intervene to get that message to Daniel. 21 days. Can you imagine what must have taken place in the spirit world to stop that message from getting to Daniel? That's another difficult concept. I don't think we have any idea what that must have been like. But this is what we're dealing with day in and day out. Turn, if you will, over to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, not 7. Chapter 17. I'm just hitting this very quickly because I am not a long-winded speaker and I am not going to go past 4.15. Yes, 4.15. It's 4 o'clock, so I won't go past 4.15. We are kind of in the same scenario that the Apostle Paul was in. In Acts chapter 17, verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill in Athens and said, I perceive that in all things... You are too superstitious. The city of Athens was the leading university of the day during Paul's time. The leading university in the world. What better person to go to Athens than the Apostle Paul, who was a first-hand witness 
instructed by Jesus Christ back in the book of Acts. A man who, well, you know his history and his past. Not a very nice guy. God got his attention. And God re-educated him, if you will. And this particular apostle turned out to write most of the New Testament. Quite an individual. Probably wasn't the easiest to get along with. And, and you know as well as I do, not the easiest to understand. But here was Paul in Athens. He said, For I passed by and beheld your devotions. I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. You can imagine him being in the street in Athens, the middle of town where all the activity took place. All these idols lining the street, out in front on pillars, around the temples, whatever. Probably the same way you and I would feel if we walked there and you just look and you think, these people do not even understand who the God of heaven is, the creator. That's how devoid of wisdom that they were. Yet they thought they had all knowledge. It's all they needed. So Paul says, here I declare to you, this statue you've got here to the unknown God. Do you realize that you and I are in the same situation trying to tell people about a, a God that they really don't know and understand? And you can't very much call them ignorant. You have to be kinder to them than that. But they've been hook, line, and sinkered all the way through life because of what ministers have taught them and told them. You know, when you watch some of the shows on TV, and I, I give these guys credit, they're great speakers, they're great entertainers and getting people stirred up, but they talk about niceties, you know, love in your heart, and you can conquer everything today, and you can, you can win and you can change things in your life. There's, there's really nothing wrong with what they're saying, but you're not going to hear them talking about sin you're not going to hear them say that, you know, the problems our world is facing today is not global warming, is not green energy. It is sin. This is what is wrong with man's garden. This is what is wrong with mankind. We have gotten away from God. We've thrown him out. And sadly to say, we're having, doing a pretty good job of it. But what's going to happen when suddenly we turn to God and God says, Sorry, you threw me out a long time ago. You're going to have to live with what you have chosen to do. Man's garden is man's way. Let me just read you a couple quick comments about something, and I won't have time to go into detail on this very much because it's, it's involved, but it's called humanism. Humanism is an openly religious order dedicated to the idea of destroying everything related to a belief in God the Almighty. This is very subtle. This is something that took place back in the 1400s, became heavily emphasized in the early 30s, and it just keeps going and going, but it's not labeled and talked about in this particular way. There is a vicious struggle raging in the world today. It is a struggle for the hearts and minds of people, more precisely the hearts and minds of your children and your grandchildren. That is a fact. That is happening. Humanism is defined by the Webster's New World Dictionary, a system of thought or action based on the nature, dignity, interests, and ideals of man, specifically a modern, non-theistic, rationalist movement that holds that man is capable of self-fulfillment, ethical conduct, 
etc., without recourse or supernaturalism. To be more specific, it is a religious philosophy that totally rejects a belief in God. There you have it. Humanism cannot, in any sense of the word, apply to one who still believes in God as the source and creator of the universe. Where have we heard that? We've heard it a lot, but not in these terminologies. Man decides for himself what is right and what is wrong. And boy, are we going through that right now, day in and day out. Man also decides that there are no absolutes, that everything is relative. Avowed humanists freely admit that they are also atheists. And the final statement, at the heart of humanism is atheism, communism, socialism, materialism, naturalism, and evolution. And I threw one more in there that I thought was probably there was progressivism. Anyway, Hebrews chapter 11. We are in man's garden. We have a little bit of a job cut out for us. The thing is, we have to live in it. We don't agree with most of it. We have to raise our kids and grandkids in it. I have three grandchildren and three step-grandchildren, and that's what terrifies me the most is what is society going to be like in 10, 15, 20, 25 years from now? I worry about them because of their education. I worry about them because of what they're facing. What I faced in the 60s with drugs and sex and alcohol and and the Beatles was nothing compared to what they're facing now. Man, I thought it was tough when I couldn't grow my hair long. I mean, that was the issue back then. I couldn't wear uh, the, the, the high-heeled boots the Beatles wore. My dad said that's just the stupidest thing he'd ever seen. <laughs> and he really gave me a hard time over that. My hair was a quarter of an inch long until I was 13. Maybe I mentioned this before on, on services somewhere. I, I know I have, but I had a burr cut all my life because he wasn't going to let me look like a beetle. And I went one day and told the barber not to cut the top, just do the sides. He did. And my dad sent me back to get it cut again. (laughs) He meant well. He really did. Hebrews chapter 11. We have to live in this world, and it's not a very pleasant place sometimes. Verse 13. These all died in faith. Hebrews 11 is a faith chapter. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them. We see these promises far off. We hope that they're going to be near sooner than we want them to be. We'd like them to take place today. But they saw them afar off and were persuaded and embraced them and confessed, and you're going to hear this probably again through the feast a few times, that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, desiring a better country, looking for a better place, looking for a better garden than what we have that mankind offers us. You know, we have to make sure... Now, we don't do like Lot's wife and keep looking back and think, you know, this is really better. What we've left behind was better than what we're going through now. Because the Bible talks about us having to suffer persecution. We have to suffer abandonment. We have to suffer people walking away from us and thinking we're crazy. Because we actually believe in doing something with our lives and living a certain way. 
couple more scriptures before we conclude. Isaiah chapter 59. I won't have time to read all of this, but I just want to read one verse because we are seeing this happen in our lives daily. Isaiah 59, where it talks about our sins and our iniquity that separated us from God. Verse 15. Truth fails, and he that departs from evil makes himself a prey. You try to turn your life around and not sin and live a different life, and people are going to say, you are crazy. You need to enjoy what's out here. What, what we have is something God has given us. You need to experience. You need to enjoy it. You know, don't rush out and get married. Live with somebody for six months or a year. Decide if it's going to work. That's how you drive a car. You test a car. I've heard that philosophy so much it just, it just wears on you. But that's the general attitude. Marriage is gone by the wayside. And I'm not talking just people that are young. I'm talking people that are my age living together. I know a man who, who does a lot of work for me on the side. He's 83 years old, and he's lived with this lady for 25 years and never been married. He just doesn't see a need to. That's the attitude of a lot of people. We are at risk. And let me read you a little something about risk. Remember what Jesus said in the parable of the pounds? Long story to make it short. You know, he gave 10 pounds, 5 pounds, and 1 pound. The guy that had 1 pound just didn't do anything with it, threw it away. He didn't take the risk. Here's something I came across several years ago, the dilemma. Because you and I take a risk. We are taking a risk because we want something better. To laugh is to risk appearing a fool. To weep is to risk appearing sentimental. To reach out for another is to risk involvement. To expose feelings is to risk rejection. To place your dreams before the crowd is to risk ridicule. To love is to risk not being loved in return. To go forward in the face of overwhelming odds is to risk failure. And you and I do that every day. But we're willing to do it. Risk must be taken because the greatest risk of life is to risk nothing. The person who risks nothing, does nothing, has nothing, is nothing. He may avoid suffering and sorrow, but he cannot learn, feel, change, grow, or love. Chained by his certitudes, he is a slave. He has forfeited his freedom because only a person who takes risks is free. And you and I take that risk to follow Jesus Christ because we're free to do that. And that's what mankind has to do. God is not going to force us. God is not going to strike you down because you go out and sin today or tomorrow or next week. Now, you may pay a penalty for what you do. You know, I keep telling some of the people that work for me, you can't go through life stupid and crazy. You've got to face reality sooner or later. You know, if you've got money... You need to use it properly. You can't throw it away. Most of these guys, they get paid. They're broke in two or three days. Well, I, I thought I was supposed to laugh, last all week. Well, if you spend it, it's not going to last. They don't know what budgets are. I, you tell them, have you thought of a budget? What's a budget? 
That's, that's a fact. Well, Paul talked about, in Acts chapter 3, a time of restitution. We don't have time to turn there because I want to conclude. A time of restitution is when it's going to come. A time of restoring something that has been lost. That's what Paul is talking about. And we're talking about what has been lost has been God's garden. God is going to come back, you see, and reestablish his garden. He's going to come back and make it happen. There's two more scriptures, if you would, over in Revelation chapter 11. He's going to make sure it happens and make sure it takes place, and it is not going to be very well received to start with. When I was growing up, we, Mr. Ramakan mentioned a couple of scriptures this morning about the kingdom. And when I was growing up in the late 60s and hearing about the kingdom of God, I always felt that when Christ returned and set up his kingdom, everything would be perfect right off. I was wrong. Because when you read some of the scriptures Mr. Ramakan talked about, he, he, he said in, in the end of Isaiah and the end of Zechariah that these people, if they don't come down to keep the Sabbath and the Feast of Tabernacles, they're not going to get rain. Which sounds to me like they're going to have a choice and probably have to learn through experience that God is going to tell them this is the way it's going to have to be, but you're going to have the freedom to accept it or reject it. Just like he did in the Garden of Eden. And you and I are going to have our work cut out for us. Because I don't think Christ is going to be the one to train everybody. I think you and I are going to be the ones he uses to train everyone. That's why he's given us his spirit. And believe me, we've lived in, God, in God's, God's garden through what we understand today here even though we're still living in the world. And you and I have got that experience because we've taken the risk and God is going to help us teach and train other people as time goes on. Very quickly, Romans chapter 11 and verse 17. The seventh angel sounded, verse 15, the kingdom of this world to become the kingdoms of our Lord. O Lord God Almighty, we which are and which was and which are to come because you have taken and your, to you your power and you have reigned. The nations were angry. They weren't happy. And your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should give reward unto your servants, the prophets and the saints, to them that fear your name, small and great, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. So there's a change of command coming because God is going to do something. God is going to take control, and God is going to make sure it comes to pass. Whether mankind likes it, or doesn't like it. But they will all have that opportunity to have a chance for salvation because Peter said, like I mentioned, God is not willing that any, any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So don't ever say someone has been lost. I think they're lost for good. I wouldn't want to say that because God's the one going to judge them. And I know how much God loves mankind because he gave us his son to die for everybody, not just you and me, but all the sinners out there that drove the nails and stakes in his hands and feet and put him on the cross. He loves those just as much as he loves you and me. And they're going to have that same opportunity someday to embrace this way and to decide. In conclusion, down in Revelation chapter 22, 
we're going to see something restored, as Paul talked about in Acts 3, times of restitution. God's going to restore something that was taken away. Revelation 22, verse 1, He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and out of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life. Wasn't that back in the Garden of Eden in the very beginning? That's because what's going to be available for mankind is life. That's what was available for mankind in the very beginning. It's a shame that that happened, that mankind rejected the tree of life. I'm sure it hurt God terribly to see what mankind has done and what he was going to have to go through. If Adam and Eve had been a little smarter and taken on the tree of life, we'd never have to go through what we're going through. We would have eternal life without all the complications of going through this miserable world that man has created and made you and I have to suffer at times. Why do we need Christ to return? Well, to save man from his own mistakes, to save man from rejecting God, to give mankind what he has lost, that relationship with him that was available in the Garden of Eden in the very beginning. And God is going to come down and God is going to tabernacle with you and me and with the rest of mankind. And someday, hopefully very soon, all of your friends and neighbors and family understand what you know. And they'll be here. The other possibility is that you just might find yourself up here speaking to them and giving them a little insight into what you've gone through. May our Savior come quickly.